Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 106? Tonight we complete our study in the fourth book of the Psalms. The cry for salvation. Generally agreed that David wrote it. Some people think it's a post-exile, post-Babylon psalm. But it's in the Word of God, and we're going to look at it tonight. The cry for salvation. Salvation, the thought of salvation brings us, of course, to worship. And we're going to see, frankly, that it begins, it begins with worship and it ends with worship. There are 48 verses in this psalm, but not to worry. We're going to go swiftly through the historical part like we did last time, God willing. So here we go. Hallelujah. That's the beginning of it, and it's also in the last, uh, it's in the last verse as well. Hallelujah. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of Yahweh? Let me stop there. Little little research on that word that's translated here, utter. Who can speak to? Who can speak with reflection or even understanding? It's an interesting word, it's an interesting phrase. There's this constant battle about creationism, you know, evolution, creationism, all this kind of stuff. It's not really a battle as far as I'm concerned, because as far as I'm concerned, the issue has been settled a long time. But here's an interesting question. Who can speak anything to the mighty works of Yahweh? You can't explain it. We study them, we try to make science out of things, and we have come up and with and gained a great deal of knowledge about the creation. We've, we have a, a, a periodic table, and we understand, as far as we know, we understand chemicals, and then there are laws of physics, and so forth and so on. But then there's this constant haggling, even between those who are atheists and evolutionists, they can't agree on their unbelief. That's kind of funny to me. I read an article this past week where this Harvard professor, well-renowned, well-reviewed, highly spoken of astronomer, says that a piece of a UFO, that a piece of a thing that is right now flying by Jupiter, well, it was last week, I guess it still is, Jupiter's a pretty big thing to fly by, declared up and down that it was something that had been made or created or built by extraterrestrial intelligence. 
And this was, this was his, <laughs> this is how a lot of people are these days. He said, to summarize what he said, this is my position unless you can prove me wrong. <laughs> you know, and you start out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to believe this and, and it's your job to tell me that I'm wrong. That's kind of ridiculous. And he described it, it was described in the article, it's a rather thin thing that's really long, like a centimeter thick or something. I think it's flying at a pretty good pace. But he couldn't get anybody else as renowned as him to agree with him. And every, for every lettered professor of astronomy or whatever, astrophysics or whatever, that answered him, none of them agreed with him and none of them could say the same thing. They didn't agree with each other. That's just kind of funny to me. It's on its path toward the sun and I can't remember if it's going to bypass the sun. I can't remember the rest of it. So this man has declared one thing. And for every other well-lettered and highly renowned doctor of whatever, every one of them had a different idea. But they all agreed that this guy was wrong. Now I've been, I've been, I have been, I have been reading, I won't say I've been studying it. Some of it, if you get to trying to study it, it's like chewing a rubber band. It's just, it just, you just keep doing something and you don't know what you're doing. But I do know enough to know that when I first started preaching, and this was in the late 70s, I guess, middle, late 70s. A professor from Brown University wrote a long dissertation with, with the proclamation that humanity, and I, I'm telling you the facts, I'm not embellishing this, I'm, I'm telling you the facts because of some studies and research that he had done and, and so forth, his, his premise was, and he was very sure of it, that humans have evolved from mold off of a banana peel left by aliens. <laughs> That's truth now. I, Brown University, I can't remember the guy's name, it's been so long ago that I read that article. Mold. An alien had a banana and tossed the banana out the spaceship window and left. And here we are. You know the old corny joke you know I like bananas because they have appeal. Okay, that's enough of that. Okay. 
No, no, char- <laughs> no charge for the slapstick comedy. That's not even comic relief. That's comic pain, isn't it? Another one I read some years later. This guy was more advanced than the guy from Brown University. Through years of research and study, had determined and did declare in a dissertation that was, and all of these are written in journals, right? These are written in scientific, they have to be peer reviewed, and somebody, at least as smart as the person who writes the article, not really just somebody, but a team of people, have to agree oh, this is worthy of publication. The next one I remember, and I've read a lot of them, the next one that I read declared that we are an advanced species of seaweed. Seaweed. Advanced seaweed. Is that why you like the beach so much? I don't know. So there are all kinds of silly things like that across the course of time. One of my favorite series of posts comes from Ken Ham, the Answers in Genesis guy. He's probably one of the strongest apologetics men who refuse. He's, you know, he's, that's his job, that's his life to study this stuff and then he refutes it. So people are always saying, you know, this is what happened, this is what happened, this is how it happened. And they're fixed on cosmogony and the beginning of all things because if they could just figure it out. And they're always bypassing God. But here's what the Bible says. The great works of Yahweh are out of your league. You'll never figure it out. You cannot make dead material change into organic material. You just can't do it. It's, you can't do it. It takes divine power, power of God. Here's the Bible teaching about that. Who can utter the mighty acts, the mighty works of Yahweh? Nobody. We, we have this magnificent beginning to the Bible that states and summarizes everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there have been tons of volumes of written work reflecting research and hypotheses and so forth. And it's just like some of the things I told you. It's just silly. And these guys, they get paid a lot of money. And the Bible summarizes it in the best way that we can understand it and then moves on from there because how everything came to be as it came to be, albeit an interesting question, and we may even in, in the new heaven and the new earth, we're, I, it's my view that 
when the great white throne is set up according to the revelation, the earth and the heavens flee from the presence of the great white throne. Now that's at the end of the millennium. It's, it's at the end of the first heaven and the first earth. Peter writes that the elements melt with fervent heat. Paul writes to the Colossians and says that Christ is the creator and he made everything for himself and he is the power who holds everything together. All, in him all things consist or are held together. Sunestomy, are held together. And someday Christ will release that mighty grip on the subatomic particles that in some, by some unknown force in some unknown way are, are cosmos. And when he releases that power, it just blows up, I guess, a nuclear explosion the size of the universe. And here the rest of us are left, first of all, to go through the final judgment of the wicked dead, including the dragon, the devil, Satan. And then experience the marvel of the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. My guess is that even though we may watch it and observe it, we still won't be able to explain it apart from the power of God. So it's an appropriate question that is left unanswered. Who can utter the mighty works of Yahweh? You better just read the Bible and accept by faith that Yahweh did it all. And that we just have to agree with what he says to us because we can't speak to it beyond what his word says. Who can declare all his praise? That's a question that uh, is an interesting question as well. All things are working to the final, powerful, yet untold glory and praise to the Creator. At a time when even the bad things that we don't understand, we will be made to understand that all of this fits in to His glory and His honor and His power. Who can declare all His praise? That's an interesting, God, in the best way that we can describe him, is infinite and boundless. He receives praise from his creation, but it could never fill the great God Almighty because you can't fill him. He's, he's beyond anything you could imagine. It's a good question. Who can declare all his praise? Now, the, the, the subject matter here is about, is about people 
who need salvation. That's, that's what this whole thing is about. With respect to the nation of Israel in its strictest context. So the psalmist asks these poignant and appropriate questions to make us realize just how small we are. Blessed are those who guard justice. And he who does righteousness at all times. The best response to the previous questions is, we have the declarations, the ordinances, the judgments of God, they are in his word. It is God's, it is the responsibility of the people of God to observe, to guard, to watch over, to keep the justice of God. And this whole thing, you say, okay, remember, the general purpose of the psalm is salvation. But if salvation is to be had, the one being saved has to understand that he is saved from something. He's rescued. He's delivered. This is our great story. People are lost. If they are not rescued, they will suffer the wrath of God. I've read it many times. It's not that we're saving people for heaven. It is that God is saving people from his wrath. That's grace. You see, everybody in the human race deserves justice. My justice was meted out on the cross of Jesus Christ. Justice has been poured out on me in the sense that the great substitute, the great atonement, the Christ of God took it for me to the cross. Now, blessed are those who keep or guard over justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Now remember, this is a psalm about salvation. It begins with a call to worship and praise. And part of our praise is that God has done things that we cannot do. We'll never be able to do the things that God has done. God has established justice. The great, the great lie of the modern era is relevancy. It has to be relevant to me. I can cherry pick what I want to take out of the Bible if it's good and it sounds sweet and kind. I can ignore the rest of it. I can even defy it. I can reject it. 
I can walk through life defining righteousness as I want to define it, and it's relevant to me. That's a, that's a big theme even in our universities and colleges, big theme. It's very difficult to talk to university and college students about absolute truth, about real justice, and so forth. They see it the way they want to see it. We, we see this in our society where law is just ignored and people get away with it. There's the blind lady, I'm not so sure her balances are balanced anymore, you know? So then, the great work of the people of God is to make sure that the truth of justice, the justice of God, is guarded over. And that we would be covered with the righteousness of God all the time. You see, if you watch and guard over justice, all of these things in the Word of God, you're going to discover that no man has any righteousness that comes from within himself. God must, God must impute righteousness. God must declare somebody righteous. God must cover someone. So, you know, the lessons for hundreds of years were the the lessons about the blood of a sinless sacrifice and the worshiper vicariously took the place as did the lamb. And, you know, the worshiper would say, this thing is me, sins transferred to an otherwise pure and sinless sacrifice and atonement was made because of a substitute. The Bible is clear all the way through the Old Testament that this thing is being is leading to the Messiah, the Christ of God who would die in behalf of his people. Now, here's a long story of the struggle of Israel after Abraham is called, well, the struggle of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then the nation Israel. How the world sought to destroy them how they collapsed and fell into sin, and yet how God delivered them because of his covenant. We'll see that in a minute. God maintained the responsibility to save his own. And it leads us then to this lonely, sublime figure, Jesus of Nazareth, who hangs on the cross. After that, there are no more genealogies there are no more stories of wars in the Bible against people where they're trying to be stamped out. What God intended to do, he did. He preserved his promise so that the last Adam could become the federal head of the redeemed, whereas the first Adam became the federal head of a fallen race. And in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. So this is our great work. If we're going to declare salvation, we have to start with God 
And we have to continue in that, declaring the truth of the justice of God and the righteousness that his people can find by guarding and observing the justice of God. When we accept the truth of a, of a holy and sacred God and the truth about who we are in his presence, then we seek righteousness as God has defined it and we find ourselves blessed. So the call is to worship the one who gives us salvation. And this is just a little summary of how it comes. Now, the personal call to salvation. So this is an individual. Here we go. Remember me, Yahweh, with the favor you have toward your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, of your elect, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Now here, that says so much. Let me just say this, okay. The worshiper is now calling out personally for salvation. Understands that salvation can only come from God and can only come from God to the way God has covenanted his salvation. So the, the one calling out says, I want you. He, he, couldn't even, he couldn't even say these things if he wasn't one of God's people. He comes to understand that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones. That I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation. That's a kingdom thing, you see. That I may glory with your inheritance. That's a family thing. So the, the cry for personal salvation is, count me with the elect. The guy couldn't even say that if he didn't if he didn't have a, a calling on his life from God. Make me part of your kingdom. Let me be a citizen in the kingdom and a child in the family. It's a great call, personal call for salvation. But in order for this to happen, The one to be saved must acknowledge sin. So here it goes. This is the law. We're just going to kind of breeze through this part. We have sinned with our fathers. We've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies, but rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And nevertheless, he saved them. Why? For the sake of his name, that he might make known his mighty power. When the redeemed of God, from the first of us to the last of us, stand in the presence of God, it will not be for the glory of anybody among the redeemed. It will only be for the glory of God. 
and for the sake of his name and for who he is. It's just that. And he rebuked the Red Sea, it dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them, redeemed them from the hand of the enemy, and the waters covered their enemies. Not one of them uh, there was left. And they believed his words, they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. And when they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron, the saint of Yahweh. Boy, wouldn't you love, wouldn't you love to have your name in the Bible? And after your name, it says, the saint of Yahweh. Aaron, the saint of Yahweh, the earth opened up, swallowed Dathan and covered over the faction of Abiram, and a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. They changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses his chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. And they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of Yahweh. Therefore, he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness and to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. And they joined themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus they provoked him to anger with their deeds, and the plague broke out among them. And Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stopped. That was accounted to him for righteousness, and to all generations, even to eternity. And they angered him at the waters of Meribah, so that it went ill for Moses on account of them, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he, Moses, spoke rashly with his lips." They did not destroy the peoples whom Yahweh had commanded concerning them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their works, and they served their idols, which became a snare to them, and they even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. That sounds painfully familiar, doesn't it? Thus they were defiled by their own works and played the prostitute by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of Yahweh was kindled against his people so that he abhorred his own inheritance and he gave them into the hand of the nations and those who hated them ruled over them. And their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their hands. Many times he delivered them, but they rebelled in their counsel. And they were brought low for their iniquity. And nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry. And he remembered his covenant for their sake. 
and relented according to the magnitude of his loyal covenant love. And he made them to be pitied by all those who carried them away captive. God remembered his covenant. So then we go from a personal call to salvation, which includes the acknowledgement of sin, to the people's call to salvation. Verse 47. Save us, Yahweh Elohenu, Lord our God. O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. We started with worship, we end with worship. Blessed be Yahweh Israel, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from eternity and to eternity, and let all the people say, Amen, Hallelujah. So there in the final book of the fourth book of the Psalms, the cry for salvation. We're going to stop there and have our deacon prayer time.